Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. A vocal virtuoso and sound artist whose presence looms large in the world of experimental music, Joan LaBarbera began expanding the possibilities of the human voice in the 70s. From multiphonic singing to circular breathing techniques, she developed a whole new vocabulary of trills, whispers, cries, and clicks. Often using electronic elements in her compositions, she has collaborated with a stunning array of orchestras and composers, including Philip Glass, Steve Reich, John Cage, and her husband, Morton Sabotnik. A television and film composer, actress, and educator, she's currently on the composition faculty of NYU. In her lecture at the 2016 Red Bull Music Academy, LaBarbera detailed how she came to master the one instrument we all have access to and how her work has continued to evolve over the decades. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Please help me in welcoming Joan LaBarbera. Thank you. Um, I don't think I've ever been called a titan before. That's great. I like it. I'll put that in in the PR. (laughs) Uh, We're we're going to cover a lot of different areas of your career, but I wanted to start with something that first came out in 1980 and play some music just to frame a little bit of what you've been doing over the years. So this is Clay Ale from uh, Reluctant Gypsy in 1980. Hey there, at this point in the lecture... They played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Thank you. So Clay Alley was reissued in the early 90s on a record called Sound Paintings. What exactly is a sound painting for you? Uh, Well... I should explain that um, I see sound as I make it. Um, And so I see um, the energy of a vocal gesture. Let's stick with the voice for the moment. Um, And when I score or when I make notations in my journals, um, I tend to draw the shape of the sound. Um, It's not so much an envelope. As, as actually the way, um, I'll do it this way, <laughs> the way sound moves along linearly in space. Um, and so the idea of, of painting with the voice onto, years ago it was magnetic tape, now it's, it's into a computer. But I think of these pieces as um, something that you experience in time, and when you when you go to a museum or a gallery and look at a painting, you you spend some time with it. You may uh, look at different parts of the painting. You may think a little bit about the structure. So what I've done in translating from visual 
into sound because we're going from basically a, a static medium into a time-based medium. Um, I'm, I'm translating from the visual, various aspects of the visual. And in this particular case, um, it was a, a very specific painting by Paul Clay. I believe it was Hauptstrasse und Nebenstrasse, main streets and side streets. Um, and the colors of the painting were predominantly greens and blues. And so what I did was to build up blocks of sound, um, the, those sort of persistent sound blocks that you hear. The painting had a certain thickness that you could actually see. And what Clay evidently did was to, after layering the, the paint to a certain thickness, then take a kind of sharp instrument and carve into the thickness of the paint with that instrument. So I'm trying to translate aspects of the painting using the voice. So creating these, these blocks of sound colors, um, individual pitches, uh, building a kind of wall of sound, and then using different kinds of vocal techniques, carving into the thickness of the paint with different kinds of technique to, to get that result. In the mix, then, afterwards, what I'm trying to do, because the, the, uh, the piece exists for X number of minutes, I'm trying to draw the listener to a particular um, event, sound event. I'm really directing your attention, almost you know, like if you have a guide in a museum and they're saying, oh, well, look at that and look at that and look at that. I'm doing that in post-production. I, I want you to be experiencing the whole thing as a whole painting, which is why they exist for a long period of time relatively. But I want from time to time you to be subtly drawn to a particular aspect of what the sound is. In Cleale, what is that? Well, um, it, it's so like in the very beginning, I'm, I'm introducing the materials. So the sound blocks. Um, the, the carving into the sound blocks is pretty subtle in the beginning. And then Gradually, as the piece progresses, I may be putting more emphasis on those little char characters or, or uh, little squiggles, let's say, that, that have been carved into the thickness of the sound. As the piece goes on, you may notice that, that you're paying more attention to one kind of sound or one kind of sound event than the overall picture. And then I'll, I'll recede that back into the, the whole texture. And I know that to be able to translate all of these different elements of a painting into sound uh, takes a lot of practice and technique on your own instrument, which has predominantly been the voice. Yeah. Can, you, can you take us back to before you even started training as a vocalist? Mm. Was there any experience growing up that, that really solidified for you the power of the voice uh, as a transformative instrument? I was always singing. My mother tells me that um, I told her when I was about two years old that I was going to be a singer. So um, that's way, way back. <laughs> but uh, the transformative power, I don't know. I mean, I, I was 
I sang in church choirs. I, I sang in school choirs. Um, at a certain point, I recognized, I remember being in Girl Scouts, um, and I would always be called on to start the songs. So I realized that there was something about my voice that people were drawn to. Were those just Girl Scout songs or, or popular songs of the day? Oh, More like chants you know, and things like kumbaya, that. Kumbaya, <laughs> um, whatever. Campfire songs and stuff like that. And I was always called upon to, to like sing the solos in, in school productions and stuff like that. I had a folk music group when I was in high school. Uh, four women. We were called the Calicos. <laughs> And we went around and played coffee houses in the Philadelphia area. And at a certain point, I decided that I, I should get serious about getting some training. And I was living in the suburbs outside Philadelphia. And there was this woman who taught voice, but also taught trumpet and piano and French horn and whatever she could think of. So let's just say she was not an expert in vocal technique. And she had this heartfelt desire to have someone sing the bell song from Lachme. Um, for those of you who don't know that, and I'm seeing a lot of blank faces out there, it's a coloratura aria. And I had no business singing a high coloratura aria ever in my life. So when I went around to colleges and I was auditioning, I was using repertoire I had no business singing. And I was squeaking through um, auditions. Did anyone see Florence? Foster Jenkins, the movie. Oh, God. If it's still around, please, please go see it. It is so wonderful. And Meryl Streep does this amazing job. And evidently, I, I can't prove it, supposedly she does the singing it's, in it. Can you explain who Florence Foster Jenkins was Florence for people who might not Foster be familiar? Florence Foster Jenkins, oh, my God, was a very wealthy patroness of the arts in Manhattan at a certain, what, early to mid 20th century. I think she died in the 40s, but I don't quote me on that. I don't remember. But she had so much money that she could afford to rent Carnegie Hall, which she did, to give a solo recital. And she had someone, uh, a, a very well-known uh, conductor and coach at the Met, teach her. But she really couldn't sing. And it's, it's just painful to listen to it. And there was, there was an, a recording that was done, I believe, of the Carnegie Hall recital. It's a cult classic now, almost. Oh, you've got to listen to it. It's just... And I, I don't blame you if you turn it off after a few seconds, but in the film, there is this um, wonderful star turn by... Oh, God, I can't think of his name right now, but he's on... Um, yes, he's on Big Bang Theory. What is his name? Okay. We'll get his name before the day is out. But the moment he's, he plays the accompanist, and the moment that he first hears her sing, the, what, he, what he does as an actor, where he's trying so hard not to break out into gales of laughter, it's the kind of thing while you're biting your tongue and you know, chewing on your cheeks and everything you can do to, to try not to respond to that. It's a priceless moment in cinema. Um, anyway, I was going around doing these auditions, uh, squeaking my way through these auditions, so I did not get into a conservatory, thank God. And so I, I went, I started out at Syracuse University. 
And I did study voice, but I, I was duly enrolled in the music department and also the English department because I was also doing creative writing at the time. And every year that I was at school, I would um, send out college applications to try to go someplace else. Uh, I'm just what that, was so bad about oh, Syracuse? it was very cold, and it, it's in the snow belt. So, you know, once it got to be sort of mid-October, it snowed and it didn't, like, thaw until mid-May. But, you know, if you guys are up here in Montreal, it's probably a little similar. Uh, anyway, I, I just, I couldn't wait to get my career started and eventually came to New York, finished up my degree work at NYU. And I studied uh, along the way with Phyllis Curtin, who was a very famous, I think she's still alive, uh, opera singer who also did a lot of contemporary music. And I also studied with Helen Boatwright, um, again, contemporary, and uh, she was a very well-known Bach soprano. And my last teacher was a woman from uh, the Juilliard School, Marion Zakely Freshel. And uh, she was a great big six-foot-one uh, Hungarian contralto. And um, she called me John. I will fix your voice, John, and then I can die. <laughs> and so she tried her best to fix my voice. And I, I, I think I, over the years I, I put together a technique from studying with various different people. Um, my warm-up exercises, for example, are, are physical exercises. They're warming up the neck and the shoulders. Uh, tongue exercises, because the back of the tongue is connected to the vocal cords with cartilage. So when you gently um, exercise and stretch the tongue, you're actually bringing blood up to the, the primary vocal mechanism. Um, so when I began, and I did begin this sort of in the latter years of college, to investigate the voice, let's say. I heard a lot of instrumentalists who were um, working with various techniques on their instruments, and I thought, no reason why the voice can't do similar kinds of things. Of course, there was Kathy Barbarian, um, who had introduced uh, sort of um, natural sounds, gasping, laughing, uh, coughing, Screaming. She later disowned many of those. Correct? Oh, yeah. well, that's a, that's another lecture. Um, yeah, uh, she, yeah, because she wanted to uh, stay in, let's say, the legitimate world. And um, there's the piece Cathing, which we probably didn't put on our playlist, but I I did a, a solo concert uh, of my music at the Holland Festival in 1977. And uh, someone from the radio said, well, can you come and do a live interview in the intermission of your concert? I said, no, I've got to prepare for the second half. Uh, but Kathy was willing to do the interview. And so uh, someone after the concert came up with a cassette tape and they said, you're going to want to listen to this. And uh, I played it and she went on this whole tirade about people who do extended vocal techniques. And at that point in time, there were only maybe a handful of us doing it. And um, she said something like, um, you know, it, it would be a foolish composer who would write for one of these people because it's, uh, you know, it, it's a special technique and it's, it's hit an impasse, she said, a kind of a stop. I actually have uh, oh, this do. recording, so oh, I, so think, I, I think we should to listen like... to a bit of it. <laughs> 
Um, sure. So, okay. so this is this is Cathing, and it came out on tape songs in yeah. 1977. This was my payback. <laughs> can, can we go back uh, and talk? What exactly is an extended vocal technique? Though we well, haven't defined that yet. Yeah, we haven't defined that. Um, it's true. Um, when when I was sort of just breaking away from from the classical tradition. Um, I started imitating the sounds of instruments, and I would work with one uh, instrument at a time. I believe I started with trombone, because a friend of mine, Garrett List, who was also a composer, um, was willing to just sit there and play long tones for me. Um, and I would use my voice and try to imitate the sound of the trombone, and then analyze um, how close I had come to that, and then began manipulating the, the mask, what we call the mask, our face. Uh, because when you start working with changing the shape of your face, what's happening is you're literally changing the shape of the vocal tract. And so you can begin to get a number of different sounds and you can really shape the, the timbre that you're creating. And so um, my journey, well, it started with long tones and individual instruments, began then to uh, improvise with with other musicians and imitate their sounds, but also really stretch what the my vocal instrument could do. And that was what I was very curious about. What period was this when you were first starting to, oh, to do my, that improvisation? Uh, I would say about 1969, 70. And uh, there was another thing that Berberian said uh, where she says it would be a very foolish composer to for people to write for someone who used extended vocal techniques. And I think your career has been a definitive rebuttal of that <laughs> based on the composers that you've worked with. And uh, yeah. there were some in particular that you worked very closely with, yeah. one of whom was John Cage. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about your very first interaction with John Cage? Ah, uh, yes. I was working with Steve Reich at the time, and we were touring Europe. And another foolish composer. Another right? foolish, very foolish composer. Um, and uh, and John Cage and David Tudor were also on tour in Europe at the time, and we would wind up in the same cities because we'd all be playing festivals. Um, and and we got to Berlin, um, and I went to see a, a performance of harpsichord at the Berlin Philharmonic. And hall, and um, there were there were people in uh, there was an orchestra in one room playing something. There were harpsichords and various kinds of electronic keyboards around, and there were people playing the instruments, not playing the instruments. There were slides being projected of the moon landing and various sorts of things, and there were thousands of people milling around, and everybody was talking, and I, it infuriated me. I Oh, it was 1972, I believe. So I was young and impulsive and very headstrong. And I found Cage, because of course I knew what he looked like. And I walked right up into, to him and I said, with all the chaos in the, in the world, why do you make more? And the devotees who were kneeling at his feet gasped. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to get an answer to this. And I turned on my heel and walked away. And a few minutes later, I felt this tap on my shoulder. And I turned around, and it was John. And he was smiling beatifically. And he said, maybe when you go out, back out into the world, it won't seem so chaotic anymore. And it didn't change my mind a 
about what I was experiencing. But it made me think a great deal about this human being who uh, I had basically affronted and who cared enough to find me in this incredible melee of people and give an answer to my question. A response, let's put it that way. Um, and several years later, when I had become a composer um, and I had started doing my own music, I happened to see John at uh, a concert at, at Phil Niblock's loft in New York. Um, Phil Niblock is um, a filmmaker who became a composer and has run a concert series in his home loft for, oh, I don't know, 40 years. Decades, certainly 30, maybe 40 years. Anyway, John was there, and I was about to do the first performances of my work. And I scribbled out on a piece of paper where these concerts were going to take place, and I walked up to him, and I said, I'm going to be doing these performances of my work, and I want you to be there. Did he remember you from the first confrontation? No. <laughs> and in fact, I, I told that story on many occasions. Um, I remember that uh, when John was getting an award uh, that was being given at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and I was brought out to uh, do the presentation of the award, and I told that story. And uh, when I came back to sit down at the table, he said, you know, you've told that story a lot. I don't remember it. I believe you, but I don't remember it. But it was, it was meaningful to me. Um, anyway, when I gave him this list of where I was going to be performing, he said, okay. And he showed up um, at this tiny little uh, gallery space on Lower Green Street in Soho. And I was doing um, a, a performance of one of my really early etudes called Voice Piece, One Note, Internal Resonance Investigation. I was really hardcore back there. Um, and uh, it's, it really, it takes a single pitch and places it in different resonance areas inside the head and neck so that um, you really explore timbrely what's going on with the material. And then I, I actually allowed myself to get into overtone focusing and multiphonics, back to the question about extended vocal techniques. Um, these all now have terms that we can use. When I started doing them, I was just making sound and reacting to different things. But at any rate, um, I, uh, I finished this piece and John came up to me afterwards and he said, oh, marvelous, just marvelous. Would you like to work with me? I said, sure. <laughs> um, and so he handed me, he came prepared. He handed me um, solo for voice 45 from the songbooks. The songbooks are a collection of 98 solos. Uh, for mostly for voice, but there are, some of them are, are traditionally notated, some of them have graphics, some of them are theatrical instructions um, about, let's say, for instance, leave the stage by flying and return wearing an animal head. You can do this if you're in a professional theater that has rigging, and I have done it a couple of times. Uh, but anyway, and some are with electronics and some not. Anyway, it took me um, six months to do all of the work 
uh, that was necessary to prepare this piece. Six months. Six months, yeah. Why, why such a lengthy period of because time? Because I had 18 pages of this stuff to do, and then I had to learn it all, to sing it. Um, and so when I felt I could do that, I called him up, and I was living in a, a loft on Green Street, Upper Green Street, in Soho at the time, and, and John came over to my loft, and I sang it for him. And he said, oh, it's, it's marvelous, it's very beautiful, but it's not as fast as possible. Six months. Yeah. And I said, I, I, yeah, I was breathless. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I mean it like calligraphic gestures, like birdsong, like, and that's ten notes. I said, okay. So what he, all that work went into creating these shapes, basically, using the pitches to create shapes, and then singing those shapes, as opposed to singing, you know, as, as a trained singer, what, what your impulse is, is to sing the pitches. Um, and that's not what he wanted. Um, so I went back to work, and uh, in 1976, uh, July 3rd, 1976, uh, at the um, festival in La Rochelle, France, we presented uh, the first simultaneous performance of Solo for Voice 45 from the songbooks. Two pianos playing winter music um, and an orchestra playing Atlas Eclipticalis for two hours and 40 minutes. Um, and, uh, oh dear, okay, I'll just say it. It was the orchestra of The Hague, and uh, John had had trouble with that orchestra before, and so... Trouble. Trouble. I'll explain. Whoa. Trouble. Uh, and so he, he gave a talk to the entire orchestra um, before one of the rehearsals, and it was, the talk was just so beautiful. It was about, you know, what what separates us from other animals is that we have the ability to take on a task and to do it to the best of, of our, our ability and really apply ourselves to the task. And I was so moved and I thought, oh, this is going to be such an incredible experience. Well, it was an incredible experience, but um, it, it was one of the hottest, driest summers in, that Europe had experienced in many, many years. And because the duration of the performance was two hours and 40 minutes. John, bless his heart, provided two refrigerators off stage uh, with cool things to drink. And he said, um, and each of the parts has long spaces in it. If you feel the need to uh, refresh yourself, you can quietly leave the stage and get something to drink and come back. Well. That's all the license that they needed. Um, I would say 60% of the orchestra behaved badly, meaning talking to each other. Um, mean, the oboe player, and he had, um, he had rearranged uh, the, the, the positioning of the instruments on the stage, so they were not in their normal order. And the oboe player was downstage center, right in front of the conductor, Richard Dufalo, who was a, a clock. So he was conducting time. So this is 15 minutes, 30 minutes, etc. This oboe player walked on stage carrying two bottles of wine. 
and offered wine to different members of the orchestra and never picked up his instrument. Drank himself into almost a stupor over the two hours and 40 minutes. Um, and at the end, I, I, you know, I just sang my little... Um, and, and the pianos were doing their part. Uh, one of the pianists was um, Richard Bernos. Those of you who are from the UK may know of him. He, he does radio on the BBC. He's a conductor and pianist and everything. Um, anyway, um, I just, you know, sang. And at the end of the performance, John was just purple with rage. And he was surrounded by all of these French journalists. Um, and when he got done talking to them, he came up to me and he said, um, oh, it was just marvelous. You, you, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. And he said, I want, oh, I want to tell you now, I am with you always. Every time I tell that, I break up. Um, it, it was a lifetime commitment. And um, it, it certainly um, was very meaningful to me, but it, it was his commitment to me for um, all of his life. And whenever I encountered um, problems, issues, whatever, I, I tried not to call him for like simple things, but if I had a really, you know, like uh, life-changing kind of issue that I had to deal with, I would go to him and I would talk to him about it and he would listen. And most of the time he would say, I think you've already made the decision. And, and it was just, he was my sounding board. Um, he also was incredibly supportive for my work. And I worked with him for nearly 20 years, uh, from that point until a week before he died. He encouraged me so much in, in my own work. And he'd say, um, don't, don't worry about what people think. Don't worry if they laugh. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing your work. And that's, that's something that I've done all, all these years. I just keep doing it. Um, and and I've, I've done a lot of, of really outrageous things. When I first started doing solo concerts, um, I would find, you know, people in the audience would start giggling and tittering. And, and you just keep doing it. And then they calm down. Because the problem was when I first started doing some of this stuff, it was using the voice in a way that people were unaccustomed to hearing. And so it made them nervous. And I did understand that. But what it made me do was to stay... What I felt was the best that I could do for the audience was to stay in my cocoon, my personal space, let's say, and just keep doing what I was doing and, and convince them that what I was doing was valuable. And, you know, over the years, I think it's turned out that way. So it, it's clear that um, your relationship with, with John Cage was really powerful and uh, that you learned a lot from him as a composer. But I'm, I'm very curious to hear, what do you think he learned from you? <laughs> um, I think he learned a lot about what the voice could do. I think he sort of imagined that there were things um, the voice could do. Um, but the way that I realized um, 
some pieces, I think were, were surprising even to him. So there's a, one of the pieces in songbooks, it's called, um, it's solo for voice 67. Uh, it's uh, in parentheses, Navajo uh, Yebuchai. Um, because he wanted the, the extremes of the voice, the very upper end and the very lowest sounds. Um, and it's all graphic. It's like these little dots uh, in the upper end and um, then little squiggles down on the bottom. Um, and the accompaniment is that of a pile driver. Uh, pile driver? Does that translate? Jackhammer? No, no, much louder. Actually, there's probably a pile driver around here on the streets, um, tearing up the streets. It's a, like, like a big metal, huge, like, like taking a girder and dropping it on the ground. That's the best way I can sort of describe that sound. Um, and, and so I'm doing you know, these little dots and squiggles, and every once in a while, at um, an unpredictable moment, the pile driver happens. So um, that's a sort of fun thing. I had a student uh, a couple of years ago from Japan and the, he was in music technology and one of the reasons he wanted to study with me was because he was very interested in noise. And, and he uh, took that particular piece as an example of my use of noise as well as other sounds that I use. Um, uh, that Cathing and the song uh, Solo for Voice 45 was in 1977, but you'd actually put out your first record a year before that, and I want to play something from that sure. so we can discuss it. So this is Circular Song from Voice is the Original Instrument in 1976. Thank you. Um, that's not quite the midpoint of the song, and I don't do it quite so long these days, but... Um, uh, maybe we could put the the score up because I think it's interesting. It's this is image one, please. Um, it is uh, it's a graphic score, obviously. Um, it is it's a process piece. So um, you start at the top with that single descending glissando on the exhale, and when you get to the bottom, you you choose your vocal range first. When you get to the bottom, um, then you inhale on the way back up. So that's the next figure heading down clockwise. Um, and, and then you sort of go over the top. So that's the transitional figure. That's why there's a little T there. So you get to the point where you're, you're changing breath uh, directions at the midpoint. Then you break it into thirds and fourths. And then, you know, what I sort of refer to as the Christmas tree, uh, it sort of goes up and back down and up and back down. And then it gets um, to the, the central point down at the bottom, which is uh, noise, basically. It, it's, uh, I, I use what looks like a capital I to uh, refer to um, um, uh, multiphonic because you're basically having two tones. But in this case, by the time you get there, it may not be a, a, a pure octave, which is one of the, the ones that I like to use, but it's more <gasps> so it's just noise um, inhaled. And, and it's, um, Aaron asked me before, is it all one breath? It, it is constantly changing uh, from exhaled vocal production to inhaled vocal production. And it's very easy to exhale a descending glissando. It is difficult to inhale a descending 
glissando. Similarly, it is easier to inhale an ascending glissando than it is to exhale. I mean, you can exhale. Yeah, that's easy. But anyway, the, the degree of difficulty is keeping the sound going, which is why from time to time you'll hear I close my mouth so you get more of a humming because that allows the saliva to uh, trickle down your throat. If you don't do that at a certain point, your uh, vocal cords just rebel and insist that you have to swallow. So you have like a little gulp in the sound. Um, uh, I try not to let that happen, which is why I close close the lips and let the, let the saliva go back. But um, the very first time that I did this piece, and I was very influenced by conceptual artists who were putting themselves in uh, various situations. Any and, specific ones? Oh, Vito Acconci, for example, who uh, either currently or, or not long ago had a retrospective at PS1 in New York. Uh, Dennis Oppenheim, uh, Bruce Nauman, John Baldessari to a certain degree, uh, Douglas Hubler. These were people who... Um, we're, we're investigating psychological states, um, uh, states of the mind, uh, certain kinds of confrontational things, issues relating to the body. And so um, this particular piece, when I rehearsed it, I never rehearsed it all the way through. So the very first time that I did it in public was the very first time that I did the entire work. So it was a challenge physically to see if I could get through it. And, and as you're working on something that, that is this incredibly difficult, I mean, you, you, you begin to use your body in a way that is not, let's say, normal uh, for vocal production. So in other words, I was actually emphasizing the movement of my stomach because it, it, it gave me a different kind of control over the whole physical apparatus because the voice doesn't want to do what I was making it do. Um, and, and so you're fighting that the whole time. And by physicalizing what I was doing, I was able to uh, get control of, of that situation. So as you're going through the piece, you, you have to be aware of what's going on in your instrument and, and calculate how many repetitions you think you can get through and be able to get all the way back to the initial uh, starting point. You just described this as a process piece, mm -hmm. and uh, there's another song on that record that has investigation in the title. Mm. So it seems like your earliest works as a composer were really being positioned almost as research into the human voice, um, research investigation. And I was curious if it was ever a struggle to try to balance the positioning of your work as research while maintaining that it was also a work of art, a piece of music that could be enjoyed in well, its own right. Yeah, um, yeah. These, uh, this, this piece and the voice piece, one note, one note, internal resonance investigation were very much etudes. Um, they were explorations of of particular uh, extended techniques. Um, the other 
piece on that recording, uh, Vocal Extensions, uses some electronic boxes that were designed for guitar players, basically. Um, there was a phase shifter, something called a frequency analyzer, which um, acts a bit like a ring modulator, and uh, the wonderful Roland Space Echo um, that I could use to uh, give myself uh, different uh, reverb, different um, echo delay periods, and I had dials on it so I could change um, the the distance of the the repetitions, uh, the rapidity of the repetitions. So I used those uh, boxes um, to improvise with the boxes the way that I would. Uh, improvise with another human being. And I would just spin the dials and get to some, and then like have to react instantly to what was going on with that. So that piece, I think, was um, moving on from the experimental pieces to something that I would say is actually getting into what I refer to as real-time composition. In other words, improvisation. And you are, as a composer, a living composer, composing in front of the audience uh, with a situation like that. At that point in time, uh, I wasn't yet using multi-track tape. But shortly thereafter, I think my first multi-track tape piece that I can recall is 12 Song that was done at uh, Radio Bremen in, in northern Germ Germany. Um, and I was invited there by um, the person who was formerly the head of the, the music division, Hans Otter, to do this recording. And um, I, I was working with a dance company, uh, Sarah Rudner, and had done a bunch of performances. And left New York the evening of, of the last of our performances, arrived in Bremen in the morning, and went right to work. Hmm, I don't do that anymore. Um, and we went into the studio, and I had my little funny-looking drawings. And I was presented with a team of um, master engineers. Um, usually in Germany at that time, there were five people. Um, one of them was the Tonemeister, um, who wants to see the score. Uh, one of them was the person who handled the tapes with white gloves. And, you know, one of them handled the mics, uh, usually also with white gloves. Uh, anyway, um, they weren't used to anyone like me. Uh, of course, at that point, there really wasn't anybody like me. Um, and, and so when they wanted to see the score, I said, well, you can look at my journals, but I said, the score is here in my head. And I said, you've just, you've got to trust me. Funny thing to say to five guys. Um, German guys, big German guys. Um, and so, you know, they did, and I went in, we, we set up all the stuff, and I started recording. And, and with 12 song, what's interesting is I think there's a bit of a misconception when people listen to my work, they think it's loops. It's not loops. Uh, each of the tracks of that multi-track tape, I sing for the entire length. So 12 song is 12 minutes and 12 seconds, 12 tracks. And I sang each track all the way through. And once we got the foundation tracks laid down, which were 
microtonally uh, shifting uh, variations on the same pitch to create a, a, this, this sonic terrain underneath. Then I began layering on um, additional material uh, and again, singing all the way through. So I would build up a very, very thick texture of sound and uh, more than I actually needed and then begin to shape it by taking things away and only using what was really necessary. And, and so when I got finished many hours of recording, uh, I think I saw something on the faces of the engineers that stays with me. It was a kind of respect. And they said, okay, you did your job, now we do ours. And they taught me about how you mix how you actually take these sounds and place them in the, the sonic horizon so that they each have their individual space and exist in, in that space. Um, and and it, it, it gave it a kind of shape and presence that I certainly would not have been able at that point in time to do. So I, I greatly appreciated the expertise that, gave, that they gave me um, at that point. Was that, um, was that idea of picturing a, the mix down as like a physical plane, as a physical presence, did that eventually impact your own compositional style in terms of how you laid things out or how you were generally thinking about the interactions of sounds on the page? When it comes to scoring something. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, certainly when I think about um, the stereo horizon or if I'm working in surround sound, um, you know, how you, you, or even in stereo, how you move sound in space. Um, how there's a, a work of mine uh, called Autumn Signal that was inspired by Merce Cunningham and how he moved his dancers in space. And using the Buchla synthesizer, I was able not only to modify the, the text material that I put into it, but also let the sounds, some of the sounds actually walk around the periphery of the sonic um, geography. Uh, some of them fly across, uh, some of them you know, be spatially located. Um, was a similar kind of thing that I did with um, October Music, Star Showers, and Extraterrestrials. That was the show on, on Sunday night at the Planetarium for yeah, that was, was there? That was the second piece on the show. The first one, um, Solitary Journeys of the Mind, is real-time composition. So it was just voice alone. Uh, the second one... Um, uh, October music, star showers, and extraterrestrials I thought would be perfect to do in a planetarium. Um, that one I actually recorded and engineered myself at IRCOM. Uh, my husband, Mort Sabotnik, had um, a commission to work at IRCOM with all of the wonderful electronics that they had there and computers and everything. And um, I was there um, because, you know, who wouldn't want to live in Paris for a couple of months? Uh, and, and so... Um, when was this? Uh, this was 1980. Okay. So David Wessel, who some of you may know of him, uh, was there and he was in the education department at the time. And he said, well, you know, we've got this analog studio down in the basement. Nobody's using it. Um, 
He said, do you want to use it? I said, sure. Uh, so he taught me how to use the equipment. And, uh, you know, I had several weeks to engineer and record that work. Um, and so it, it came out, I think it came out first on an LP on Nonsuch called The Art of Joan LaBarbera. Um, and then I remixed it and we brought it out uh, digitally uh, on CD also. And then you heard it the other night in the planetarium, those of you who were not in the pool. <laughs> uh, I think it's important for people to know that the work that you were doing kind of infiltrated the mainstream in a way that might not be uh, expected normally. And uh, to illustrate that, I want to play a video. Those from 1977. Mm. Um, and this is Joan LaBarbera contributing to Sesame Street in 1977. So if you can play video three, and then we'll, we'll talk about it, that afterwards. I, I need to know what the response was by Sesame Street producers <laughs> when you turned in that. Well, it, I mean, it was the head of the music department who asked me to do it. Um, uh, I was working at that time with um, a number of different composers. Uh, Cage. Who were some of those? Well, Alvin Lussier, David Berriman, uh, David Borden, uh, Robert Ashley. Um, and uh, Mimi Johnson, who is the owner and head of Lovely Music, was also, and, and Performing Arts Services, was the manager for all of those composers. And so she decided to put on a concert series at a place called the Diplomat Hotel. I don't know if it even exists anymore in, in Manhattan. And so each night, a different composer was represented. And... Um, I remember that with Lucier, we were doing a piece called the Tyndall Variations, where um, I was singing with Bunsen burners and using the voice. You're trying to bend the flame of the Bunsen burner and get it to make little dancey things and finally extinguish it. Anyway, the head of, of the Sesame Street uh, Children's Television Workshop came to these concerts and came up to me afterwards and said, would you like to um, compose uh, a score for the signing alphabet, which is what this is? Um, and I said, sure. So I, I took my electronic boxes that I've already described into the studio and uh, basically did it in real time, watching the film. Um, and I wanted to make it fun because the idea was that um, they were trying to encourage hearing children to get intrigued with signing so that they could begin to communicate with deaf children. That, I mean, that was the theory. Um, and, and so, you know, this has played for years, uh, since 1977. And every once in a while, a check comes in the mail for like $32.17. I think, wow, it's still playing somewhere. <laughs> when you were working on, on a composition for, for a specific intent, um, where did these ideas come from initially in the sense of wanting to explore the paintings of a certain artist or the sculptures of a certain artist or the words of a certain artist and translating that into a sound that was representative of your own art? I, um, I have always been drawn to, um, sorry for the pun, to museums and galleries. And I, I love looking at visual art. 
Um, I did a lot of creative writing um, as as a young person. Um, I, so my my interests were very broad, and um, it was sort of natural for me when I began exploring the vocal instrument to think about you know painting with this instrument uh, as opposed to painting with a, a brush. Um, and and so, you know, those those early sound paintings like Twelve Song, Clay Alley, uh, Shadow Song, um, Urban Tropics. I, it was a way of of translating from the visual into sound, and how you um, use your vocal instrument or other instruments to give a sense of what that visual is inside your brain. I don't know if that really translates, but it, it's it's my way of, you know, sort of sounding a painting. I did an orchestra piece uh, a couple of years ago. I, uh, I first experienced the work of Agnes Martin in, I think, 1976. I was performing at a gallery um, in, um, in Italy, and the gallerist had some of Agnes Martin's early drawings which now would cost a fortune, probably cost a small fortune then. But at any rate, I just absolutely fell in love. They were extremely minimal, just like graphite on very small canvases or on paper. Um, and so I, I had wanted to do an orchestra piece in this immersive way of of placing the audience inside the orchestra. And And so what I did was when I got a commissioned from the American Composers Orchestra. Um, I started by creating a, my version of what painters do when they prime the canvas. So I created this kind of wash of sound with vocal breath, bowing very, very lightly uh, on the harp, um, running the palm over the strings on the inside of the piano. So you begin to get this, this sort of on beyond white noise texture. And then um, we had, I had placed the, the musicians very specifically in places in Zankel Hall, which is um, the, one of the halls in Carnegie Hall. It used to be a movie theater, now it's a concert hall. Um, and there's an upper gallery on two sides. So I, I placed um, a lot of the string players up in the, the two sides. I was on stage, the piano and the harp were on stage, and in the back of the auditorium was the percussion, and on some upper balconies I had flute, um, I think trombone. In the audience itself, I had clarinet and bassoon, because you could have them seated in the audience and they didn't have to use their arms a lot. Um, so it, it was my way of really surrounding uh, the audience with the sound. Um, and then with this wash, then uh, sort of creating this foundation, I then started one string at a time introducing these lines. And I used uh, a flautando technique on the string, which is a very, very light pressure. So you're just, just sounding the string. It, it is almost flute-like. Um, but it, it was my way of translating the 
the graininess of the graphite um, and, and this very almost thin sound and building it one pitch at a time until um, I had this sonic painting going on uh, over top and surrounding the audience. When you're doing work like that, does it feel like you're translating not only um, the paintings of Agnes Martin, but trying to capture a bit of her personality as well? Because you've worked with, uh, you've been inspired by other artists like Joseph Cornell or Virginia Woolf. And I'm just curious how much of the results of these works you feel are identified with their own personalities and not just the final output of the work that you're drawing inspiration from. Um, I'll tell you a little anecdote. Um, I lived for about 18 years in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Agnes Martin lived in Cuba and then eventually in Galisteo. And I think she spent the last years not in Galisteo. But when I met her, uh, I was at a restaurant with my husband. We saw some friends of ours, and I said hello. And and um, this friend said, uh, do you know Agnes Martin? And I said, uh, no. Uh, so we were introduced and Agnes went to the bathroom and I said, is that the Agnes Martin? I was already in love with her work. Um, and th this person said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I, I would just, you know, lo love to talk to her. And she said, well, go out and visit her. Take her a pie. So I said, okay. <laughs> this was in Santa Fe? This is in Gal I was living in Santa Fe. She was living in Galisteo, which is a little south of, of Santa Fe. So I went out. She lived in this great, huge ranch. Um, no pie, though? I took her pie. I definitely, I don't remember what kind, but I took her pie. Um, and I also took her um, some of my music. Um, I took her my work Rothko, which is inspired by um, the specifically the paintings in the Rothko Chapel in Houston. Um, and it's layers and layers and layers of uh, voice doing multiphonics and uh, overtone focusing and bowed pianos. And yeah, it's a long piece. So I put it on, you know, I'm sitting there listening, very proud of my work. And she let it go for maybe a couple of minutes and she said, oh, take that off. So I stopped it, and um, she said, it's very long. And I said, okay, it's a sound painting. It exists in time. Um, I said, well, you know, what, what music do you like to listen to? She said, oh, Beethoven. So I thought, okay, all right. And then she said, do you want to see some of what I'm working on? I said, sure. And so we went out to her studio, and she pulled out these huge canvases. Remember, I'm in love with the little ones, the little um, minimal canvases. Huge paintings of stripes. And it was like, I don't know if any of you have been in love with someone's work and saw something that was like a betrayal. But I, it was, to me, a betrayal. And I hate to say this, but after she died, I thought, well, now I can do my orchestra piece. Because <laughs> she's not going to say, oh, take it off. You know, um, and so I was like released um, back into my hero worship of, of this artist and, and her work, the period of her work that I really loved. Um, and I could then, you know, do this work. And I must say, it's mm, a little bit easier to work with dead people 
than living ones <laughs> in some cases. Dead people aren't asking for changes to the, <laughs> the score. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've done um, a lot of collaborations also over the years, and I've had wonderful experiences with um, a number of, of artists from different disciplines. Um, Jane Comfort course comes to mind wonderful choreographer who did um and is still doing a lot of brilliant work a lot of it political um should we get into american rendition um, are you ready or let's you let's play a song for, or can you introduce what an american rendition is and then we'll play something from it yeah um an american rendition it was the second collaboration that i did with jane um and this is referred to as a spoken word opera. An American rendition refers very specifically to um, people who were kidnapped uh, and spirited away to some undisclosed location and tortured for the information that the powers that be thought that they might have. Um, and so this particular piece is a we we experience in the course of of this it's a dance dance piece also um complicated and and so we experience the 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 abduction of a male dancer actor um and various um depictions um of of essentially psychological torture and so this particular segment, and it was in in segments. This piece, um, it's um, it uses very loud rock music, and and it starts out with sort of, I mean, you'll hear it, kind of sensual things, and the the this the abductee um, was had been stripped down to his underwear at that point, and the dancers begin like crawling. Over him, I mean it—it's so horribly invasive, um, and so this piece is called um, "Down the Rabbit Hole." Rabbit hole acid trip. Rabbit yeah. hole acid trip. Okay. Even even better. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So so that's obviously very different from some of the music that we started with. How have you continually tried to push your own compositions forward and not gotten stuck in a place that maybe people might have wanted you to stay? Uh, maybe there are people who have experienced something like American rendition the same way you experienced uh, Martin's stripe paintings as a sort of <laughs> betrayal. But, I, but I'm more interested yeah. not in that betrayal, but um, how you've been challenging yourself to continually innovate and change the structure and intentions of your own work? Yeah, um, when, when I started working, and we, we started with that question, um, I was developing a, a vocabulary of, of vocal sounds, um, an orchestra, if you will, of vocal sounds, some that I think are more string-like, some more reed-like, some more you know, percussive. Um, and um, then I created a number of pieces using very abstract sound, really shying away from language and trying to um, express purely with the vocal instrument. Um, 
as I began then uh, collaborating with different people, um, you know, Jane would come to me with ideas or, or Kenny, Kenneth Goldsmith, um, with whom I created 73 poems, uh, which is a, it's a combination of visual and text and voice and electronics and sculpture. And so each, each work actually has its its genesis its its beginning and then how i approach it i'm i'm sort of following uh, a meandering path in into the work and i i do several things as i start a new piece um one of them is is once i have the idea or um uh, a proposed idea um i do a stream of consciousness writing just text and I just write and write and write and I try not to censor myself and then when I finish this brain dump um, I go back and I, I read what I've written and find the music from how, the words. How much time do you take between writing it down and returning to it usually? It depends. Sometimes I'll do um, several days worth of, of just writing and then after that, there's a long period of, of finding the music and, and beginning to map out what I'm going to do with it. The, the third piece that I did on Sunday Night Windows is um, part of an opera that I've been working on since 2003. Um, and it started out as a piece called Wolf Song. Um, and I was working with my ensemble, Next Works. And uh, it was inspired by the life and work of Virginia Woolf. And the first version of it, uh, I distributed the musicians around, it was a gallery space, uh, around the room. And I said to them, it says, if you've been strewn into this landscape by an unseen hand, and I said to my cellist, uh, at that time it was Ruben Codelli, uh, I said, can you play lying down? He said, sure, I do it all the time. Um, and so I, I placed them in, in unusual positions and then gave them uh, fragments of text from Wolf. And I said, you can proceed through this at your own rate of speed. So sometimes it was two, three words, rarely more than three words. And they were translating as I do, from text into sound. And these were musicians that I had worked with for uh, a while, so I really trusted their instincts. Over the years, uh, I've, I've added in now um, the life and work of Joseph Cornell, an American sculptor. I hope if you don't know his work, you will go see it. Um, beautiful, exquisite, small boxes. Um, and he uh, came out of, out of the surrealist tradition, so dreams were very much uh, a part of his work process, actually. Um, sleeping was part of his work process, uh, to try to dream and then to not quite leave the dream and go into work. And so these boxes exist somewhere between fantasy and the subconscious, um, this, this kind of realization. He also kept exquisite journals. And so some of the inspiration that is going into this piece are the little fragments uh, where he would describe some of the dreams. 
are you generally interested in exploring that boundary between fantasy and reality in your own work? Why do you think that the line between the two can be such a, a fruitful area for artistic exploration? Um, I think each of us, when we're confronted with uh, a, a piece of art, whether it's uh, text art or visual art or sound art, um, have a reaction to it. And, and that's what makes each of us different. One of the things is that we have our own personal reaction to things. Um, and I am interested in um, exploring that territory, um, exploring, I guess, maybe subconscious ways of, of reacting to things and, and letting your imagination uh, have some degree of freedom before you bring the tools in to make it a piece. So um, exploring uh, just fantasy and ideas and and the labyrinthian territory that is inside your head. I, I want to play a video that is actually an example of you working in the reverse, where you had something very specific to work with that you had to create sound for. Uh, this video is uh, quite graphic, actually, so uh, it's the sound that matters. So if you if it gets too graphic, just close your eyes and listen. Um, but can you play video two, please? I, I do have a good reason for showing that video. Um, can you explain what we just watched and, and why I am showing that video that we just watched? Well, um, what was it exactly? Yeah, I mean, uh, we euphemistically call that voiceover work. Um, I, I was hired um, by the, uh, the sound designer to come in and to voice um, the alien newborn, which is... The monster. Which alien movie was that? This is uh, the fourth one, Alien Resurrection. Um, and the, the director, um, Jean-Pierre Genet, um, we had long conversations, long in relative. Um, when I, they brought me out to, to Hollywood, to Burbank, um, and uh, showed me these clips. And we, we talked about the fact that the, the alien newborn is actually a clone of Ripley, Sigourney Weaver, and the alien queen, the monster. So the alien is part human. Um, and, and they had hired someone uh, before me who made monster sounds. And they decided that they, it, they, they wanted something that didn't sound so much like Godzilla. Uh, and and so there's talking about boundaries and territories. There's this really delicate boundary, um, and and we talked about the fact that that it's 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 actually infanticide. Uh, when you see the 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 alien come up and and rub its face against Sigourney's face, it's it's a child. It, it's a baby. Um, and and so he wanted, Genet wanted um, some elements of humanity in it, but not too much. Um, uh, and, and to get the voice, I really studied the, the 
physicality of the head of of the monster. Um, it's it's got this enormous cranium and this big kind of resonating thing in the back of its head and this huge tongue. I mean, you see Sigourney take some of the saliva. Now, the saliva to any other being would be acid, which is why when she throws it against the window, it burns through the window of the spaceship. But because she and it are share the same DNA, she's able to actually take this, and she knows what she's doing. And, and there is this very poignant moment when the, the baby, essentially, in my mind, I was saying, why, why are you doing this to me? Why did you do this, mama? And she reaches out and says, either my baby or I'm sorry, or some combination of the two. So it's a very emotional scene. Um, and I, I decided they had shown me, this is the death scene, obviously. Um, they had shown me this in, in short clips, like two or three seconds. Um, uh, and I said, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do the, the, that whole sequence where it's being sucked out through the window in one long take. It's, it's about 11 point something seconds. And so I did it uh, constantly inhaling and exhaling um, so that you, because I felt if I broke it up into sections, marrying those sections back together would not be as, as um, uh, horrifying. As, as what you actually experience, which is the, the, the physicality of, of just that length of time, of being, you know, realizing what's happening, going through that, you know, why have you done this, and being actually literally pulled apart as you go out through the spaceship. So, um, so it's not just it's not just a physical preparation for that sort of oh, performance. No, no. It's very much emotional, getting in to the roots of of what the actual situation you're, is. You're you're act you're playing a character. You have to become that being, whatever it is. Um, and so I had to imagine that I was experiencing this, um, and and to use the sounds and not really think so much about the sounds once I was doing it, more just do it, you know, experience it viscerally, what was, uh, what was happening to my body as, as it was being sucked out through this tiny little hole. And there's a piece you've been working on recently um, that also has uh, fairly dark subject matter. Um, but I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about that because you're having to teach people how to access that character in this sound. Can you can you introduce a, a murmuration for Chibok? Yes, um, I was commissioned by the Young People's Chorus of New York City uh, about a year or so ago to write a piece for young singers. And uh, Francisco Nunez, who is the music director and conductor said, we don't want any old choral piece, we want you to do your thing with, with our singers. And I thought about it for a while. Um, I went to some of their performances. And um, it was not long after uh, April 14th, 2014, when over 200 girls were kidnapped from their school in Chibok, Nigeria. 
Um, and I, as a, well, as a human being, of course, but as a woman, I responded incredibly uh, to the fact that these girls had so much courage to be attending school at all. Um, and the fact that they were kidnapped because they were going to school. And I, I said to Francisco, I want to do a work um, honoring these girls, over 200 of whom are still me missing. I think the number, I don't remember exactly, but it was up in the neighborhood of about 290 some. Uh, there are about 219 still missing. Uh, 21 were released about two weeks ago. Some are now dead, but I wanted to do a work um, honoring the courage of these young girls. And what also upset me deeply was when it first happened, there was a great deal of worldwide attention on this. Outrage. Um, hashtag bring back our girls was something that was started. Um, and then, as happens with news stories, uh, we lose interest and the news media moves on to something else. A year later, in uh, April of 2015, there were a few articles, a few remembrances. Um, but then it disappeared again, and I thought, these girls are still there. Um, and I wanted to do something. And, and so... Um, Francisco and the Young People Scores agreed to let me do this work. Um, and I then did some workshops with them, teaching them my vocal techniques to see what they could do. And I chose certain techniques that I, I thought that they could do very well. One of them was um, the ululating sound. Um, we're going to demonstrate it at some point. But it, it, when they all did it, this whole room full of girls doing this wonderful fluttery thing, it just it sounded so joyful. And I thought, oh, this is the beginning of the piece. This is the girls coming together because they had all gone home and they had come back to the school to take a physics exam. Um, and so, to me, this ululating sound was the joy of these girls coming back and, and seeing their friends and, and, you know, talking and saying, oh, I'm happy to see you, blah, blah, blah. So the beginning of this piece is this whole um, ululating, joyful sound um, that, that is sculpted in time by the conductor and using um, language that is not language. It's, it's the sound of language, but it's not actual words. Um, that is then stopped by um, a, a clapstick. It's, it's two pieces of wood hitting each other. And then it, it continues on into the piece. But um, I, I started to, at first I worked wordlessly. Then I realized that it needed some words. And so I went to um, a librettist, actually a wonderful Vietnamese-American novelist, Monique Trong, um, and uh, we, she agreed to do the work with me. And she was adamant that the girls' names, at least some of their names, had to be part of part of the piece. So um, we do, at a certain point, speak and sing some of the names to honor these girls and to keep them in our present uh, awareness. Can, can we bring up uh, image four? I think people would be interested to see where you start mm. with a composition like that. <laughs> so what are we looking at? Okay. Um, 
when when I started working uh, after I had done the workshop, um, I I got images and ideas, and I I start by doing drawings, and so. Um, uh, outside my my window, I live in uh, up the Hudson River, uh, a little outside New York. So there's a there was a tree branch that was hanging down. So the the left side is actually the top, and and this thing was hanging down. And I drew it, and then I thought, well, if I turn it horizontally, it becomes um, a musical line or or a collection of musical lines. So the the center stem um, is is this sort of undulating uh, tone, and then the the branches that that drift away from it um, are just very gentle sighs. Ah, 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 and then there's a, a sort of steady. Tone. I don't have recordings of, of this work yet because it's being premiered in New York uh, November 4th and November 6th. And you've mentioned around this piece going into the Young People's Chorus for the first time and trying to teach them some of your techniques. Could you maybe try to teach us some of them now? <laughs> nice transition, Aaron. Very nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use this other microphone. Um, those of you who are singers and sound engineers know that microphones are very different. Um, and and I happen to like this one very much. I did a lot of testing. It's not great for speaking, but it's great for doing other things. This other mic is better for speaking. But So um, I won't really try to, to teach you because that takes quite a while, but um, uh, I'll just demonstrate some of the vocal techniques, like um, like the inhaled glottal click, for example. Now it's not really inhaling; <laughs> it's it's sort of setting uh, the vocal apparatus in a particular position and what you're doing is um, ever so slightly inhaling um, but you're just separating it's a subtone it's basically a subtone so just by moving your your lips and tongue then you can sort of speak on that um, it's it's I like the inhaled version of it. the exhaled version of it is called a vocal fry, but I like the inhaled version because you can actually get almost individual clicks happening. Um, the vocal fry is more it's just, you know, the vocal fry because it sounds like a frying egg. Um, um, you know, people gave names to these things after um, I and some other people started doing it. But you can use the vocal fry to create a multiphonic. Um, multiphonic is basically sounding two pitches simultaneously. So you can either start with the vocal fry and using your brain, um, begin to bring it from a sub tone up to a recognizable pitch. Uh, 
start with a kind of um, comfortable mid-range pitch and let it drop. What technically you're doing, which I didn't know I was doing at the time, is that you are getting the false vocal folds to sympathetically vibrate with the true vocal folds. Um, so you're actually tuning a secondary voice producing mechanism within your throat. And the most predictable uh, of, of these is the octave. Um, sometimes if you can relax everything, you can get an octave and a fifth. I don't know if I can actually do that. It's sort of gravelly and it kind of comes and goes. Um, ulation. Um, it's laughing. It's basically laughing. When I teach it, that's what I say. Just laugh. <laughs> and you're you're laughing on pitch, right? <laughs> and then what what I've got uh, the girls to do, which is uh, like a yodel flutter. Uh, so you you get to the break point. Each of our voices has a sort of break where you go from one register to another. So that's like fluttering back and forth cross-registerally. Um, and then if you add sort of imaginary language to that, you get this wonderful sound that I've got the girls doing. And I said, you know, your voices, they're all, they're so wonderfully young, they're high school age, so their voices can go much higher than mine can at this point in time. I said, use that whole terrain and like really play with it. So you can imagine like 30 voices doing this. It's just, it's incredibly, wonderfully joyful. Um, what else did I do? Oh, well, inhaled singing, you know, um, I've, I've had people say, you can't sing on the inhale. Well, of course you can. We all can. Um, if somebody stepped on your toe, you'd go, <gasps> right? Or something like that. Uh, or maybe curse them out. But, um, but basically, it's that sound slowed down. So when I teach it, I teach by just breathing. You know, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. At a certain point on the inhale, begin to sound the inhale. And then slow it down. So, to it. You can sing on the inhale and, and on the exhale. Um, so those are, are some of, of the techniques I use. You know, you need other voices to do the thing, the microtonal thing, but, you know. My, my. <laughs> How have you seen these techniques infiltrate 
the mainstream over the course of your career. What do you think uh, have been the, the real tipping points in these extended vocal techniques going from something that people might have giggled at in 1976 uh, to being heard in, in a major song somewhere that is heard all over the world in what it would normally be considered pop music, or not necessarily pop music, but the mainstream in general? Yeah, um, of course, when I when I first started working and, and uh, other composers got interested, um, people would write pieces for me, but they tended to use extended vocal techniques to um, connote madness. Um, and I thought, well, gee, yeah, okay, but it's not only that, it's so many, many other kinds of things. Um, and um, certainly now, if you look at the work of Caroline Shaw, uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize uh, last year, I think it was, for a work, a choral work for a room full of teeth, she's using a lot of uh, extended techniques. Um, I, I do remember, um, well, there was a, vo a vocal ensemble called Electric Phoenix in London. Um, and the Extended Vocal Techniques Ensemble uh, in San Diego, uh, at UC San Diego. And so there were composers who were writing for this quartets of, of voices. Um, and as I said, some, some individual composers wrote for me. But uh, I, would, I guess it was um, maybe in the early 90s, uh, I was teaching at the College of Santa Fe uh, in New Mexico, and one of my students um, brought me the work of, of Björk, and it was the first I had heard of it, and I thought, well, okay, I recognize this. Um, and I was really intrigued at her uses of the voice, uh, her layering of, of voices, in some cases beginning to use electronics with voice. Um, and actually the other night, uh, when I heard... Uh, uh, Lucretia and, and Pan performing, um, I heard what I feel is maybe uh, some of my influence in, in some of your work. I could hear little, little bits and pieces of things that I thought, oh yeah, I remember that. Um, I mean, it's, it's an instrument. We use the instrument. We all use the instrument. We use it in different ways. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm happy when I hear this. I, it's very funny. I I think that when I began working, I thought there would be an avenue into um, classical music, fine art music, but it seems that it was sort of short lived in that arena, with a few exceptions, and that it's gone quite happily into, um, uh, let's say, a more uh, pop or commercial territory where um, uses of, of the voice, uh, noise, and and um, breath sounds, and language, and, and various kinds of sounds that are now in, incorporated in, into um, beats, oh, beatbox singing, you know, um, uh, is is really fantastic, um, and um, yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. 
The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Montreal. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, if you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. <laughs>